Hello and welcome I'm Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today I have a very special guest on our show. He's someone who's also known as one of the world's foremost philosophers, a professor at Harvard University. We have with us today Dr. Michael Sandel. Professor Sandel has written his latest book called The Tyranny of Merit and he's here to discuss his book. I'm absolutely excited to have him on our show today and I'm not going to get into too much into intro but yes please do listen into the conversation and i really hope you love reading this book as much as i did also before i get into the show i would like to thank my colleague ashwarya who actually edits all our episodes painstakingly thank you so much ashwarya and of course if you can listen to us on spotify apple podcast google podcast twitter we are there everywhere uh, so what's the deal let's get into the conversation thank you so much professor sandal for being in our show I will start with the book in the first in the very beginning you have written this lines uh, and I thought I will um, first I'll start with this you say that to the contrary it appeared on the scene at the time of un- nearly unprecedented inequality and partisan rancor in the context of when you introducing the book to the readers uh, can you tell the readers what was the thought behind writing the book what is it that you want to drive home with this book the pandemic arrived at a time when our societies were morally unprepared not only in terms of medical and public health preparedness but we were unprepared in moral and civic terms this is because our societies today are deeply divided and the theme of the book the tyranny of merit what's become of the common good is how to account for the deep polarization in our societies and the main argument of the book is that in recent decades the divide between winners and losers has been deepening polarizing our politics driving us apart this has partly to do with widening inequalities but it's also to do with the changing attitudes toward winning and losing that have come with the deepening inequality those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing the measure of their merit and that those who fall short those who struggle have no one to blame but themselves this attitude toward winning and losing the belief that my success is my own doing arises from a seemingly attractive principle the principle of merit or meritocracy meritocracy is really at the heart of the book and the book the tyranny of merit tries to explain how a seemingly attractive idea led us astray true i will start where you start the book about this example of uh, this college i mean uh, of college admissions and how these big names in hollywood and a lot of people had tried to get their kids into prestigious ivy league colleges and there is this system of in a lot of people i mean across the world people aspire 
to be one of the Ivy League colleges, it's, it, there's so much competition around it. And of course, a lot of people believe that if you have merit, you will land there. But then you also break down the points about it's not just merit, there are other factors that also contribute to it. Why did you lead the book with that example? You're right. I do begin the book with a story, a story of a scandal, mm -hmm. a scandal about college admissions. It didn't have directly to do with Harvard, I, I should add, but with many well-known universities where a number of wealthy parents, some of them celebrities, were so desperate to win admission for their children to prestigious colleges and universities that they hired a corrupt private college consultant who helped them give bribes and to change, even to change test scores, the college admission scores of their children to enable their children to win admission. And this was an enormous scandal. It was discovered, the FBI investigated it, federal prosecutors brought charges. It dramatized the intense desire of young people, especially from better off families and their parents to win admission to these prestigious colleges and universities. And the reason I begin the book with this story is that this is a story, it's about a scandal that everyone, of course, is appalled by. And yet I raise the question, what really is the moral of the story? Is the moral of the story that this was an isolated cheating scandal that fortunately was discovered? Or do money and privilege and affluence play a much broader role in giving advantages to children from well-off families? It's really the second, that the role of of money and privilege and affluence is greater than we sometimes realize, it undermines uh, the meritocratic principles we profess. The argument of the book is that meritocracy is unsatisfying for two reasons. And this is one of them, that we don't really live up to the meritocratic principles we profess, money and, and affluence and family background still play an enormous role. Chances are not truly equal. The second argument is, even if we lived in a perfect meritocracy, where chances really were equal, there would still be reason to question the assumption that those who land on top deserve to be there. So these are two lines of critique that I raise against the meritocratic way uh, in which we have organized opportunity to income and wealth, admission to prestigious colleges. True. Getting into the book, you know, you've talked about how these are dangerous times for democracy and the dangers can be seen in rising xenophobia and growing public support for autocratic figures who test the limits of democratic norms. Uh, for example, your book is more focused on Trump and how he won the election or the American white and also about Brexit. And in both contexts, if we look at it, uh, we have seen across the world, even in India, we've seen that there is this right, the far right, which is winning with far bigger margin. 
what are the reasons for the same? What do you think? I think the reasons for the success of authoritarian so-called populist uh, politicians and parties and movements in countries around the world, just as you said, is that there is, an, there is enormous anger and resentment among many people who feel left behind by the global economy, by the new economy. And what I try to point out in the book, the tyranny of merit, is that what animates much support among working people and those left behind for authoritarian populists is the anger, the sense that elites are looking down on them. Now, why should it be that those who've been left behind feel not only that they're struggling economically, but that they've been excluded from the public life of democratic society. Why should they feel that elites are looking down on them? Part of what has fueled this sense of exclusion, I think has to do paradoxically with the meritocratic promise that if you work hard and play by the rules and get a university degree, then you too can rise. This formula, this slogan, this promise if only you go to university, then you can rise from difficult conditions. This promise seems inspiring in one way. It's certainly a very good thing to encourage more people to, to go to university. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But as a political solution to inequality, it's inadequate. Not only is it inadequate, because the majority of people don't have a four-year university degree, not in the United States, not in most countries. Most people don't have a college diploma. So, so what about them? How can we make life decent and dignified for people who may lack prestigious educational credentials? and who feel excluded. And I think this is the constituency that authoritarian populists have been able to appeal to. And that has to do with the sense of anger and resentment against elites. And we see how authoritarian populist right-wing figures uh, uh, argue against uh, intellectual elites, against elites in the media, those who believe with some self-satisfaction that they have earned their place at the top. This is a potent source of grievance that authoritarian populist figures have been able to exploit. Sure. There's one more part of it that I wanted to understand. You know, in your, even in your book, you've talked about how in the 2016 election, Trump won two-thirds of white voters without a college degree, and while Hillary Clinton won decisively among voters with advanced degrees. And similar was the case when it came to Brexit that you have noted in your book, which talks about how most of the people who overwhelmingly voted for the Brexit were people without advanced college degrees. Education has a far important role to play, but in that sense, also, we've also seen that a lot of these political funding has happened toward uh, far right. How does 
all this mixed together because if we go on twitter or if we go on any social media platform where people connect with each other and we can see what's happening globally there has been this distinctive rise in uh, in the voters who are tending towards the populace education has become one of the deepest divides in politics these days now it used to be that center left parties social democratic parties were parties of working people and of low income voters protecting them against the power and the interests of big business what's striking is how this has changed in recent years center left parties social democratic parties have increasingly become parties of college educated voters parties th that represent and draw upon support from the professional well credentialed classes and this has alienated from these parties working people farmers people with a little education who increasingly vote for authoritarian right-wing candidates and this i think goes together with the fact that some of the authoritarian right-wing candidates also derive financial support and electoral support from business elites so but but they would not succeed these politicians and parties without the support of those without a college degree you mentioned the uh, and I, that donald trump won 2/3 of white voters without a college degree in 2016 and he did it again even though he lost uh, this time in 2020 2/3 of white voters without a college degree went for trump in fact he said it one one of his rallies he said i love the poorly educated <laughs> this is trump so he knows he recognizes that those without a college degree are an important source of his support now why should this be well i connect it in my book i connect this electoral tendency of non-college educated voters to be attracted to authoritarian right-wing populist figures i connect it to the galling features of the meritocratic political message and project offered by mainstream center left uh, parties like the democratic party in the united states the labor party in britain for example telling people that the remedy to the inequalities and to the wage stagnation brought about by globalization is simply that they should go off and get a college diploma that may be a, a worthy solution for a small handful but for most people who do not have a college diploma there is something insulting and discouraging even humiliating about saying that the reason you are struggling is your fault you didn't pick yourself up and get a university degree and this is why i think a great many voters who do not have a college degree are attracted to angry a, a politics of anger resentment and humiliation that says 
Elites are looking down on you. Elites do not respect you or the dignity of the work you do. Sure. But when it comes to, even in your book you've written, and also uh, generally when it comes to this entire divide, the, the rise in inequality has gone up over the last two decades, two, three decades. Even Mr. Thomas Piketty in his latest book had talked about how inequality has risen even in America. And in, uh, in the, the bottom 50% haven't really been able to go up. In fact, have, they've gone down further in the eco chain. Uh, in that context, I wanted to understand how do you think they would vote going forward? I think it's an open question whether the mainstream parties and especially the center-left parties, will find a way to speak to the sense of humiliation that has fueled the grievances that Trump and other authoritarian populists exploit. So it very much depends on whether these parties are able to recognize their own role in contributing to the inequalities that uh, to, to contributing to the inequalities and also to the sense of exclusion and humiliation felt by many without a college education, and find a way to articulate a political message that has to do with the dignity of work. I think we need to focus less on arming people for meritocratic competition and focus more on the dignity of work, on making life better for everyone in the society and recognizing the contributions of those that everyone makes, regardless of their credentials, contributions they make through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve. So what will happen to the, in politics in the future depends on how effectively center-left parties especially, but all political parties, how effectively they combat the inequality that has deepened in recent decades and find a way to accord greater recognition and esteem and respect to everyone in the society, whatever their credentials, whatever their educational background, that is a big political project, and it remains to be seen whether some political parties other than authoritarian right-wing parties will find a way to speak to those frustrations and grievances. Sure. Towards the lower end of your book, you've written about, you've written this line and it caught my attention. Uh, it said, equality of opportunity is a morally necessary corrective to injustice, but it is a remedial principle, not an adequate ideal for a good society. Uh, could you explain the listeners in the end, what is, you know, what do you drive home at? Equality of opportunity is an important part of the meritocratic political project that in the book I suggest is inadequate. And here's why. The political message that we've been discussing that I criticize in the book says, if only we could have truly equal opportunity, then the winners of the race could feel that they deserved their winnings. But would that make for a just society? Or would the winners of the race be those who were lucky to be born fast runners, who were lucky to have the gift 
of fleetness of foot. So even in a perfect meritocracy, it would be a mistake for the winners to assume that their success was their own doing and that they therefore deserved all the winnings, all the rewards that a market society showers upon the successful. Because what this would, would create would be something that we already see to a, to a troubling measure. It would create a sense, I call it a sense of meritocratic hubris. The belief among the successful that their success is their own doing and that they therefore deserve all the benefits that flow from it. What this misses is an appreciation of the role of luck and good fortune in life. What it also misses is a sense of indebtedness among the successful, indebtedness to family, to teachers, to neighborhood, to community, to country, to the times in which they live. If we really believe that our success is our own doing, then it's hard to imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. But a greater sense of the role of luck in life and, and a, a sense of, of, our, of our own gifts, that can prompt a certain humility. That can enable us to look upon those less fortunate than ourselves and to say, there, but for the accident of birth, or for the luck of the draw, or for the grace of God, or the mystery of fate, there go I. That could be me. And therefore, perhaps I should take a more generous stance and sense of responsibility for those less fortunate, less credentialed than myself. And so in the end, what I call for is the kind of humility among the successful that comes from, from an appreciation of how fortunate and how indebted even the most successful must be. This spirit of humility is the civic virtue we need now. It can open the way to a greater sense of our obligation to those less fortunate than, than, than ourselves. And this, a certain sense of humility among the successful might, just might point us away from the anger and the rancor that afflicts our politics today and point us toward a, a, a more generous kind of public life. True. You mentioned about the fact about how people believe that you know, education will give them a stronger access to a better life. And a lot of Americans believe that versus a lot of Europeans believe that they need far more governmental help in terms of pensions or other measures. And that's why uh, I mean, in America, if you could explain to the listeners why it is less than Europe and why is it that people could uh, demand or ask for more measures from governments in terms of benefits. One version of the American dream comes close to the idea that I, that I criticize in the book. The idea that you can make it on your own. You can make it if you try. And if you do, it's thanks to your effort and your talents that you get ahead. That's a familiar idea. And in some ways, it's an inspiring idea because it leads to the thought that my fate is in my hands. 
that we are human agents, that where we land in life is the result of our efforts, efforts and talents. And there's, there's something exhilarating about this idea, but, but it has a dark side. And it makes it very difficult for us, and especially for Americans, to deal with the inequalities that we've seen in recent decades. Because if we explain those inequalities as the result of different levels of effort, one individual to the next, then that leads to the idea that those who struggle, those who've been left behind, it's their fault. They have no one to blame but themselves. And this forgets the role of, the, of fate and accident and fortune and circumstances of birth and upbringing. And there is a difference, as you mentioned, and as I write about in the book, between American attitudes toward success and striving and European ones. When they do surveys asking people, are effort and hard work the primary ways of getting ahead? Americans tend to say yes, and, and Europeans are much more divided, and many say no. And this connects with the American faith in individual upward mobility. We've long told ourselves, Americans have told themselves, we don't have to worry so much about inequality because in America there is mobility, the chance to rise from the class of one's birth. And we tell ourselves, traditionally, and in Europe, they have to worry about inequality because they are less mobile societies than America. Well, today, actually, this is not, no longer the case. It's actually harder to rise from a poor family, one generation to the next in America, than it is in many European countries. Uh, harder to rise than it is, for example, in Germany or in Denmark or in Canada. So we can no longer console ourselves, we Americans, with the thought that we don't need to worry about inequality because it's always possible to rise. Because it turns out that the chance to rise and to compete effectively for educational opportunities depends on a certain measure of social equality, depends on having a certain basic provision for uh, health care, for enough to eat, for a roof over one's head, for basic, uh, basic conditions that enable a person to strive and to compete and to get an education. So today, mobility requires inequality. Mobility is not an alternative to equality. True. Before I let you go, the last question. Uh, these days, there are many critiques of liberals uh, than of the right wing, and we see it rightly so around the world everywhere. Uh, if you have come across criticism for your thoughts about this book, what is it that you would like to tell, tell the listeners? And also, there is this huge fissure that is getting created uh, in terms of how people are voting, in terms of how people look at each other. Do you see that, that the left and the right can meet somewhere along the way or the fissure is too high at this point? The fissure, the divide is pretty deep politically, and we've seen the extremes of this divide recently with the attack by the mob on the U.S. Capitol. This attack was 
in a way, the culmination of the polarized politics in, uh, in America, certainly over the last four years during the presidency of Donald Trump. And Trump did not create the polarization and the division, but he certainly did exploit it. And he certainly did deepen it. And he certainly did contribute to carrying it to the level of violence that we saw in the attack on the US Capitol. So I think that the new administration and President Biden have a big and difficult task to try to heal the country, to try to heal these deep divisions, to find ways to overcome the polarization. And my suggestion to President Biden about how to begin the healing is not simply to think that soothing words can cool down the rhetoric and therefore um, begin to draw us together. That's an important first step. But I also think he needs to find a way to speak to the sense of exclusion, even the sense of humiliation that a great many working people who lack a college education feel. They feel that the work they do is no longer respected and valued by the society as it once was. They feel that they and their voices and values are not respected or heard by elites in the media or intellectual elites or, 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 or a government. The people who invaded the Capitol, the, the angry mob, it may not be possible to reach those people. But I think it is possible, and I'm hopeful, I certainly hope it's possible, that a large portion of those who feel anger and resentment against elites can be reached by a political agenda, a political message that focuses on renewing the dignity of work and that focuses on according respect and honor and esteem to everyone in the society, not only those who managed to succeed in educational or financial terms. It's a big project. Whether it will succeed remains to be seen. True. One of the things that your book reminded me while I was reading it was the fact there's this line that I always loved um, from this book by Teach Nathan on mindfulness, which, always, which says that your success isn't yours alone, your failure isn't yours alone. And I think in that similar sense, your book reminded me of that line once again. I love that line. And, and in a way, that line summarizes uh, the message and the spirit of my book, The yes. Tyranny of Merit. That's the message. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for your time. <laughs>